Good morning. I'm Scott Warner, president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago, and I welcome you this December morn. Today's program will be visiting India, not by way of a magic carpet, but through the embodiment of the Instant Pot, led by a culinary guru and Instant Pot wizard, Chandra Ram, who will tell us how the Instant Pot helped her uh, an Indian-American forger ethnic identity, and Chandra will give us some tips on how to use this popular contraption. And she knows what she's speaking about. Chandra is the author of the Indian Instant Pot Cookbook. And yeah, this, 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 beautiful, this beautiful book, uh, Chandra authored that, wrote the Korean Barbecue, Korean barbecue Cookbook with uh, Bill Kim, this wonderful Chicago chef. Chandra's done so much, and there's a lot more than lentils when it comes to Chandra's culinary expertise. Chandra spent 15 years working as a cook, bartender, server, and consulting chef before turning to food writing and editing Plate, an award-winning food magazine that challenges chefs to take food further. She is a James Beard and IACP-nominated cookbook author, and holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from Loyola University, an associate's degree in culinary arts from the Culinary Institute of America, and has passed the certificate level of the Court of Master Sommelier's exam. Uh, wow. And Chandra has won multiple awards for her writing and editing, and she's going to share all that she knows with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Well, it is lovely to be here with you all today. And um, I am here to talk about Indian food and how I came to appreciate and understand it and also cook a little Indian food for you. We've got a little bit of that started. And um, just kind of answer any questions that you have. So as Scott said, my name is Chandra Ram. Uh, I am a food writer based here in Chicago, and I did uh, write this cookbook, the Complete Indian Instant Pot Cookbook, um, which is which is an interesting thing because um, I didn't realize when I started the whole thing how how important the Instant Pot would become for Indian food for me. Um, I should say that I live about a mile away, and I live in an apartment. And so I have an apartment-sized kitchen, and I, and, which means I have no room for gadgets. I also uh, went to a fairly traditional culinary school, so I'm definitely someone who grew up of the, uh, the way of thinking of, you know, you, you braise everything in a pot, on the stove, in the oven. I, um, I've actually... Um, I mean, we're all friends, I'll just do two confessions here. I've actually never used a crock pot or a slow cooker even. And I was just sort of like, okay, well, you know, this sort of is what, this is what this is. But the thing is, I, um, I've also, I have only with my cousin's very close assistants used a stovetop pressure cooker. But it was something that I saw my entire life. I am half Indian and half Irish. So um, my father was Indian. My, my mom is a short, white-skinned, blue-eyed, red-haired Irish lady. So if you think physical opposite, that's my mom. Uh, so I always grew up uh, seeing pressure cookers and, and all of that and really wanting to kind of understand more of, um, about what they did. So in the interest of time, I'm going to get a couple of things going here because I realized kind of last night that <laughs> we're going to be doing a few things at once here. Who here is familiar with an Instant Pot? How many of you all have one but are terrified to use it? All right, all right, noted. Um, that's how I feel about stovetop pressure cookers. So, um, so the Instant Pot is actually designed to be as foolproof as possible. And I love when I hear from people um, about how it's, it's made them unafraid to cook certain things. I was actually talking to, if you all know Kevin Hickey, the chef owner of the Duck Inn, um, he was at the Ritz-Carlton for years. 
I um, ran into him the other day at the timeout market because he has a, a restaurant stall there. And he was telling me that his wife got an Instant Pot and she never cooked at all. And then once she got the Instant Pot, she was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to cook everything. So we were laughing that they should do a cookbook and that's her doing the Instant Pot version and him doing the old school Frenchy stuff. Um, so one of the things about the Instant Pot is uh, that you can use it to, you know, for any kind of slow cooker things, which obviously I have no idea how to do. But um, pressure cooking, you can use it as a rice cooker. Um, most models can be used as a, as a yogurt maker. Um, one of the great things about it is um, that you can saute in it. And so um, before I get fully into my talk here, I'm going to um, use the saute function just so I can show that off, but also for purposes of timing. So um, what I'm going to do, you guys are going to sample a little uh, uh, a Bengali cholar dal over some rice, and then we've got some raitha with it. And raitha is something that always figured in very largely for me as a, as a kid eating Indian food because my family in India is from Andhra Pradesh. Um, and actually, my father's from a, a very small town called Vishakhapatnam, more popularly known as Vizag, on the southeastern coast. And um, they all just love really, really spicy food. And if you're a little kid coming from America and facing really spicy, tangy, sour food first thing in the morning, it's a lot. So Raita become, became like the thing for me that sort of saved me. So I'm going to, um, because we're doing everything in this one pot, I'm going to go ahead and get uh, the Raita done. I'm just going to heat up some ghee here. Um, ghee, I think uh, it's often like just sort of best described as like a clarified butter, um, butter with the dairy solids removed. And um, one of the reasons it's very popular in Indian cooking is because there hasn't always been consistent uh, access to refrigeration. And ghee is shelf stable, but as you can smell, it's still very buttery. So. What I'm doing here is making a kind of tempering. Tempering is one way um, we season our food in India. Um, it's a way of cooking uh, spices and aromatics uh, and then pouring them over top. So uh, raita often gets this sort of tempering that um, really gives it a lot of extra flavor. I love it. Um, I'm going to cook, I'm going to do my absolute very favorite thing, which is cook curry leaves in ghee. Um, when you do Indian recipes, um, Colleen, you must run into this all the time. People say, oh, what can you, what substitute can you offer for curry leaves? And I always say, like, there's absolutely nothing. Um, you have to just buy them. Uh, Kathy got these over at... Patel Brothers last night, uh, where they always have a great, uh, they always offer access to fresh ones. Um, I'll often keep a few extras in my freezer, but I'm fortunate enough I live exactly eight and a half minutes away from the Patel Brothers on Devon. Ask me how I know that. That would be recipe testing not going well and realizing it's 8.50 and the Patel Brothers closes at 9 and can you still make it? You can. <laughs> and you can just roll in and park in front and, and they're used to seeing me running in there early in the morning, late at night. So I'm just kind of tearing the curry leaves uh, into pieces. It helps uh, release some of the, uh, the flavor in the leaves themselves and just puts them into smaller, smaller sizes. Yes? What's the tree? It's an actual, it's a leaf from a plant. Yeah, this, it's totally different. The word curry is very controversial for a lot of Indians because it's actually a British construct. And um, so you'll actually find Indians who are like, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about when you say curry. And I'm more of like, okay, I know what you're talking about, but, um, and you know, it's hard for me to kind of insist on otherwise because you do see curry 
powders and uh, and curry used as a you know as a description of a dish in India. It's just that uh, as India kind of removes some of the uh, British constructs uh, associated with it. There's, and I think particularly with Indians who are um, part of the diaspora and live in Europe, in the U.S., they're just much less interested in that. But uh, curry leaves, um, the plant is called neem. Um, I can pass some of these around so you all can smell them. So what I'm doing here is just kind of, I've, I've added a few spices to the ghee. And what we're gonna do is just kind of have this like lovely spice and curry, toasted curry leaf mixture, and we're gonna pour it over yogurt. So the yogurt here, there's a ton of different ways to make raita. I grew up with a raita that um, was essentially plain yogurt mixed with very finely diced tomato, cucumber, red onion, and cilantro. These days, I, um, if I just want to do a really quick one, I'll, um, I'll do toasted cumin, ground cumin, lime juice, and plain yogurt. So we've got, this is, I, this is the yogurt. A lot of people these days are buying um, Greek-style yogurt. And if you're making raita, I always recommend you kind of thin it out a little bit. I just do it with water because you want something that's, that's really not as not as thick. But yogurt is another thing. It's another kind of touchstone for me because I remember when I was a kid, my mother used to make her own yogurt. And she bought uh, this yogurt maker that was, in retrospect, kind of like a super hippie thing to find in the 70s. But at the time, you couldn't buy plain yogurt in America. You could only buy the sort of like bright pink that, you know, that color that doesn't exist in nature but somehow exists in yogurt. Uh, so she had to make her own yogurt. So I think that uh, it was a, like, a really great day when plain yogurt started being available more often. So I'm just gonna add a little lemon juice and some lime juice to season the yogurt, help transform it into the right that we want. I've got my spices and everything are going here, and then I'm gonna add, I always add mustard seeds last because what happens is they start to pop, almost like popcorn, and then they start to pop all over the place. So I always feel like that's the final sign that the, uh, the right that is done. So yeah, it's been really funny. Um, Every now and again, in the process of working on this book, I'd call my mother and say, like, oh, yeah, remember you used to make yogurt? And she's like, oh, God, thank God I don't have to ever do that again. And I'm just sort of like, do you miss it? Do you miss the romance of it? Do you want to learn how to make it, you know, with an Instant Pot? And she's just like, no, absolutely not. Like, I'm done with that. But um, we've also had some really fun conversations about what it was like for her to start to cook Indian food and uh, to learn about it herself. So what I'm doing here is we've got, we've got ghee, we've got a mix of spices, I've got some cumin, some turmeric, some mustard seeds, I've got curry seeds here, and I've got my raita that's been seasoned with uh, lemon juice and lime juice. And since there's so many spices in uh, the tempering mix, I'm not gonna mix anything else in there, but like I said, sometimes I'll just uh, mix in some toasted ground cumin. And otherwise, just sort of spoon this on top. I don't know if you guys can hear if the microphone is picking this up, but uh, as it hits the uh, yogurt, it's all sizzling, which is kind of lovely itself. And then, so I'm just gonna put this to the side and get some things going to heat up the doll, which I made earlier. So let me talk to you guys a bit. Let's back up. We'll talk about how all of this got started. I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. And in 
in my mother's house, my father passed away uh, a little over 30 years ago. In my mother's house, though, there's this framed picture, and I never, I never get tired of looking at it. There's a lot to see. It's about 30 people lined up on a rooftop of a building, a flat rooftop of a building. And there's tops of these massive palm trees behind them. And it looks like something of a formal occasion. Most of the men who are standing in a, in a row in the back, almost like a team of security guards, they're all wearing ties, if not suits. There's an older couple in the center, flanked by women sitting in chairs in the second row, while a few colorful striped blankets on the ground serve as a seating area for the children in front. No one is smiling. Seated among the women who are wearing this circus of jewel-toned saris is a woman with her hair teased into a short bouffant instead of pulled back into a bun, her ivory skin a contrast to the varying shades of brown surrounding her. She's wearing a black and white full-length mod style gown that reviews, reveals clues of her life just a few years before as a young woman living in London in the 60s. But those days are gone. Now she sits on a roof deck in a small town in the southeast coast of India, a little bit of an uncertain half-smile on her face. As you can tell, she wonders, is it okay to smile for a family portrait? And she has a baby in her lap. That was October 1973, and I was that baby. I turned a year old at some point on the flight to India, somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. This was the first of many uh, flights that took our uh, trips that our family took to India. It was my first trip there as a one-year-old, but it was also my older brothers who were ages three and five, it was their first trip, and it was my mother's first trip to India. who She was meeting her in-laws for the first time six years after meeting my father, after marrying my father. Standing behind my mother on one side is my father, who was seeing his family for the first time since dropping the bomb that he had secretly married my mother in London in a Catholic church. <laughs> Doing that made their, what Indians call a love match. And it was an act of rebellion. My grandparents were very traditional, strict Indians who had tried to arrange a marriage for my father before he left home to do a fellowship at the Royal College of Surgeons in London. He told them that he wanted to focus on his education in London and not be married. And he did focus on his education right up to the moment he went to his friend's engagement party, met my mother, sidled up to her and offered her a cigarette, asked her to dance, and the next morning announced to his friends at work that he had met the woman he wanted to marry. The cigarette part I find hilarious because my parents are like the most anti-smoking people ever. And um, since we were growing up in Kentucky, would do things like when we were all kids, light up a cigarette and say, okay, everyone try a puff. And then when you're like coughing and ready to throw up, be like, that's what smoking's like and you should never do it. So <laughs> the fact that one of, when you lose your father as a child, you never stop having regrets of things you would like to ask, and chief among them is, seriously, did you smoke? Because that was a weird line. <laughs> My parents got engaged, though, uh, within a few months of meeting, and they married nine months after that party. My mother's father, who was a retired uh, na Irish naval officer, and was one of her only living relatives, objected to the relationship until my father wrote him a letter to formally ask uh, for my mother's hand in marriage. He, my grandfather appreciated the respect and traditional behavior my father engaged in and even encouraged my mother, who was pretty much raised by nuns in a town of 5,000 called uh, New Ross in County Wexford, Ireland. He encouraged her to do a Hindu wedding ceremony uh, as well as the Catholic one planned in London, saying if he's coming out of his comfort area to do this for you, you should do the same for him. That first ceremony took place only after my mother tracked down a priest who was willing to perform a wedding mass for a mixed faith couple. The priest did so on the condition that my father meet with him regularly for pre-cana lessons. 
Then he canceled the meetings after the third session, telling my father that they believed the same thing, but they just used different words and different ceremonies for it. Go, he said, and marry. And so they did that September without telling my father's family. And that was for good reason. His younger sister was getting married that December, and it was a high-profile wedding to a member of Indian parliament. This was a wedding at which Indira Gandhi would be a guest. My father was to return to India for the occasion, but didn't risk ruining his sister's wedding or the potential for it to be canceled by the weight of a scandal of his marriage. This is something, this is a dynamic that's really prevalent in very, I think, especially in traditional families in India where like the groom's family has all the power and you cannot bring scandal onto this. And it would be a scandal for him to, uh, this woman's, for his sister's brother to have married a white woman unknown to the family. So he went home to India. He told one of uh, my uncles and one of my other aunts that he, was, he had secretly gotten married, had them go help him buy some jewelry and a few saris for my mother, and then smiled and said nothing during his younger sister's elaborate multi-day wedding. During that time, my mother was in London, uh, writing him letters from their apartment there, uh, where as a newlywed, she was learning to cook Indian food. And preparing for a life married to someone whose culture was still really a mystery to her. And preparing for the family she had just learned that they had started. She wrote to him, asking how the wedding had gone and how his parents had taken the news of their marriage, and kind of a, I hope it went well, because guess what? We're going to have a baby. And as you can guess, by the time my father told his parents about his secret wife and, oh yeah, she's pregnant, it didn't go well. My grandparents, of course, assumed it was a shotgun wedding. My father was insulted by the assumption and returned to London. After my brother Ravi was born in London, my father mailed copies of the marriage license and birth certificate to his parents. But by the time they spoke again and truly forgave each other, my parents, my mother once again expecting a baby, had moved to the US. I came along two and a half years after they settled in Cleveland, Ohio. And a year later, we embarked on that trip to India. My, brother, my mother brought with her the traditional jewelry an Indian bride receives from her in-laws, sent to her by my grandparents with a letter welcoming her into the family. And she brought me, a baby whose eyes were the same as my grandmother's, who charmed everyone by taking a few wobbly steps before being picked up and passed around from auntie to auntie, feet to never touch the ground again for the remainder of that month-long trip. My mom said I actually uh, got back to the US and I had forgotten how to walk. And my two brothers, my two older brothers were there, age three and five, and they hadn't been raised to be silent and formal around elder relatives and sort of warmed hearts and excited the family by running around and shouting in a very American way for their grandfather to come and show them to explain this tree, to explain this bird. That was the first of what would become regular biannual trips to India for my family. My younger brother added to the mix in time for the next one. We settled in Lexington, a college town in Kentucky, within a few years, and planning for our trips began months in advance. We planned each trip. My parents would ship a crate full of food, uh, instant oatmeal, cans of tuna, pancake mix, and jars of goober grape, which was this very kind of, to me, it's a very weird mix of peanut butter and jelly in a single jar. And it was expensive, or I think it was expensive, because my mother always refused to buy it just in our everyday life in Kentucky, but she couldn't resist the convenience of peanut butter and jelly in a single jar for those trips. Those crates were essential for keeping the peace with four children who were not up for idli and spicy sambal for breakfast. A month or so before we left, my brothers and I would terrorize my father at the hospital where he worked, um, mostly terrorized his interns by screaming bloody murder as we tried to, as they tried to administer yet another round of vaccines for polio, meningitis, and measles. We got those before every single trip and uh, count ourselves among the most vaccinated children in the world. <laughs> for weeks before we left, my parents would engage in nightly rounds of suitcase Jenga, packing and repacking to fit the giant bottles of bare aspirin my father always picked up uh, to give to his mother for her arthritis, gifts of corningware, casserole dishes, watches, and eight-track tapes. 
the mornings we left were known as dark morning in our family. And I think it was just because we were getting up so early in the morning for our flights. I'm pretty sure my parents never got to sleep the night before those pre-dawn flights, but they marked the start of each adventure by giving us this special treat of hot chocolate in the kitchen before we left for the airport on a chilly December morning. I was fully in my 30s before I realized that those warming bowls of cocoa were spiked with Benadryl. Um, which is a really classic trick employed by many Indians in America who knew that the excitement of a fresh book of Mad Libs was not going to carry us through the flights from Lexington, Kentucky to Charlotte, North Carolina, to LaGuardia, transfer to JFK, wait 12 hours, fly to Germany, then connect and fly to New Delhi. My brothers and I would read comic books and in the airport, quite horribly, stand behind people watching these little black and white televisions that worked for 10 minutes for each dime you plugged in there. Imagine doing that with four children. We emerged eventually in New Delhi. International flights arrive around midnight or 1 a.m., so our first glimpse of India was always in darkness. But India never shuts down, and there is always somehow a huge crowd of people outside the airport arrivals area and a cacophony of sound from the men selling fruit, offering tours to the Taj Mahal, taxi rides, or English-style accommodations. My parents would find a porter to push our luggage cart with several of the largest available American tourist or suitcases stacked precariously one on top of the other. When we weren't looking, those porters would tear labels off the bags in order to sell them to people they knew who would sew them onto cheaper bags and sell those to people as fancy American luggage. We'd exit the dim glare of the airport arrivals lounge into the night air, where my father's uncle would be waiting to greet us, with two cars and two drivers. As we stood by the cars, negotiating how to fit all these people and all of those those bags in the cars, I'd take a deep breath and inhale, breathing in this weirdly captivating blend of cleaning solution, petrol, and toasted cardamom, and smile as my uncle swept me up in giant hugs. Even as a child, I knew that India was mine and I was hers in some way. I've never felt totally at home in India, but it has always felt like part of me. We were the Americans, part of the family, but different from everyone in certain ways. We'd spend a few days acclimating in New Delhi and then take trains to Vizag, my father's hometown, where my grandparents still lived. And we'd meet aunts, uncles, and cousins who would join us there for a few weeks from their homes in Delhi, Hyderabad, and Calcutta. Once in Vizag, we'd settle into our visit. A dozen hours off from our usual time zone, my brothers and I would spend our first few days still drowsy with jet lag, and our nights playing hour after hour of cards when sleep wouldn't come. Our specialty was playing war, a game that requires zero planning, strategy, or anything. But if three solid hours of playing war doesn't do the trick, you really aren't ever going to get to sleep. People might stare at us while we walked to the candy store in town or went to the beach, but ambling along amid a gaggle of uncles and aunts and cousins, we belonged. We may not have spoken any of the languages or understood what to do in the Hindu temples, but we were still part of the clan, if a little different. In some ways, it wasn't so different when we were home in Kentucky, where a stranger might approach me at the grocery store and say, honey, what are you? It asked where I came from, or the first day of school when they would do roll call, and it was always Audrey Nash, Jeff Phelps, long pause, long pause. Then I would just say it for them, Chandra Ram. No one could pronounce my name. I wasn't white enough to fit in with the other kids at school, but not Indian enough to run with the crowd at the Indo-American Civic Society. Like my parents, I said things like the phone line is engaged, much to my friend's amusement, and turned beet red when my mother packed an Indian dessert called barfi in my lunch, because I was in third grade, and you just can't do that to a third grader. (laughs) At home, we had an Indian cabinet in our kitchen that reeked of pungent, funky asafoetida and cumin, a cabinet I prayed my friends would avoid when we foraged for cookies during sleepovers. If it wasn't always easy to be in India, It wasn't always easy to be in America either. It's a weird feeling. I'm not, I don't actually qualify as a Desi, which is the term for Indians living overseas. 
but I'm still different enough to qualify for other things. I still get extra screening at the airport every time. I went out of my way to an obnoxious degree, I think, to make conversation with Indian and Pakistani cab drivers after September 11th, wanting to draw a connection that welcomed them, but still knowing I didn't fully understand their experience. A lot of the Indian Americans I know feel the same way. America is our home, but some part of us identifies as Indian. We're not completely one or the other. We don't want to let go of Indian culture, as our parents were encouraged to do when they immigrated a generation ago, but we don't always know how to claim it for ourselves. Although I was always interested in food and cooking, even there it was hard to find footing. At home in Kentucky, I spent hours in the kitchen with my mother, who's an adventurous cook who made everything from South Indian dosa to Japanese stir fries. I was really jealous of my friends in Kentucky who go home to have canned soup and sandwiches for dinner because I went home and we had something called Toledo steak once and I was just like, what is this? And she was like, it's a Spanish thing. And I'm like, okay. But in India, the kitchen was actually off limits. My grandparents cook held court there and curious young American visitors weren't welcome. And to be honest, I didn't really love the food. The long dining table in my grandparents' house, my cousins down tangy idlis, doused with spicy samba for breakfast, while my brothers and I ate instant oatmeal and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, needing a break from the unfamiliar. When we did eat curries, my kind of lame, weak American palate couldn't handle the heat, so my aunties would patiently spoon demerara sugar and yogurt onto the food to tame it for me. Uh, fun fact, the person with the spiciest palate I know is my mother. And we always joke that she must not have had enough seasoning in her food growing up in Ireland that demanded that she had extra, but I have seen her. She doesn't do it anymore, but I have seen her take a bite of a, uh, a Thai bird chili just to see how spicy it is. And I've watched my relatives stare at her and say, like, oh, my God, what is this white woman doing? <laughs> But even later, as I grew up, worked in restaurants, went on to study in culinary school, cook in restaurants, and embark on a career in food writing, I didn't have as strong a background in Indian food as I would have liked. I knew how to throw a few dishes together, but I felt like I was just sort of replicating some of the greatest hits, not really exploring the cuisine the way I felt comfortable doing others. I understood only vast snippets of this vast cuisine people shove in a single box and label as Indian. So when people tell me that they're intimidated to cook Indian food, I get it. There's a lot of unfamiliar spice blends. There's, along, among that, there's the need to do the extra work. There's soaking your lentils, soaking your chickpeas, um, toasting your spices, doing a long braise. Not to mention the fear of using the stovetop pressure cooker. So at my grandparents' house in India, their cook used the stovetop pressure cooker. And it's something that's very common in Indian cooking. It's my understanding that it's because there is uh, a lot of people cook solely on a stove. Um, electricity, and it's usually a propane-based stove, electricity going in and out so often, even in large cities, meant that you wanted, if you wanted to cook dinner, you had to have a power source that was independent of the electric supply. And so in India, you'll, you know, they'll make yogurt with it, they'll cook rice, lentils, and beans, they'll cook, do cakes with it. And, you know, part of it as well is, and, you know, some of the reasons why I wasn't always so comfortable going into my grandparents' kitchen was um, the caste system, which we have to address and be honest about is the, you know, the fact that in India, for my parents, or, you know, for my grandparents and my family there, the prospect of, oh, I'm really interested in cooking was like saying, hey, I want to be one of the servants who you're paying, like, a tiny amount a month. And that's not, I'm supposed to be a doctor, by the way, so, um, or a lawyer. Uh, so it's one of those things that, uh, that made, it, made it confusing culturally as well. My mother wasn't comfortable using a stovetop pressure cooker. I'd seen one ex actually like lid burst off and explode once uh, in my grandparents' house in India, and I was just like, well, well, I'm not gonna do that. So I just didn't grow up with it. 
And so weirdly, as I mentioned before, I grew, you know, I live not far from here. I live in an apartment kitchen. I, uh, I'm not a gadget person. And so it was the Instant Pot that made this feel uh, doable for me. When Instant Pots first came out a few years ago, a friend of mine was talking to me about them and said, oh my gosh, and, you know, you can do all these things with them and you can braise, you can do a pork shoulder, you can do all this stuff. And then she was just like, oh, and you can do lentils, you can do one of the great things you can do with them is cook you can go from dried chickpeas that have not been soaked overnight in advance to you can have hummus within 45 minutes. It's crazy. And I loved that. That was something that really intrigued me, particularly because I've just never been the type of person who can remember to soak the dry beans or chickpeas the night before. My brain doesn't work like that. So this was something that, for me, it, it kind of unlocked Indian food for me. And you know, it brought this history and culture of Indian food into my kitchen. Once I had the epiphany of making, you know, some of these long braised dishes in 20 minutes instead of hours, I knew I'd found the key to making Indian cooking manageable. The Instant Pot opened a door to making me feel more connected to my family and to our food traditions, even while living a very fast-paced American life. I could cook something like chana masala on a weeknight, even starting with dried chickpeas and get a better texture. I could make rasam, the South Indian brothy, tangy, spicy soup. I could make that at the first sign of a cold. And yes, I could look my visiting auntie in the eye and tell her I was making and not buying my lime pickle. This book I wrote was created with the idea of helping make Indian food as unintimidating for other people uh, as possible. One of the things I learned uh, while doing research for it, and actually while I was writing it, that um, I was, I actually was sick in bed. I had the flu, and so I couldn't do anything for a few days. And I was flipping through the Indian Instant Pot Cooking Facebook group, which at the time had 75,000 people, and I think has probably doubled since then. And the woman who moderates, moderates it said, um, you know, hey, just curious, how many people here are, uh, are Indian and how many people are not Indian but interested in Indian cooking and interested in doing it in the Instant Pot? And it was three to one, non-Indians to Indians. Um, interestingly, when I first started working on this book, I called my, one of my Indian cousins who lives in a suburb of Dallas now and I said, hey, you know, I'm working on this book and you know, can I come visit and we'll, we'll go through some of the, the dishes and that. And she said, yeah, and you can teach me how to use an Instant Pot because I have one, but I refuse to use it because I don't understand why I would ever give up my stovetop pressure cooker. And then I said, okay, well, let's talk about those, uh, the recipes for the stovetop pressure cooker, which I, you know, I know some of you have probably looked up Indian recipes with a pressure cooker. And if you're not familiar with the stovetop one, it's hilarious because it doesn't say cook this for X number of minutes. It says, wait three whistles. And you're just like, oh, sure. I'll just wait for three whistles. That seems like something. But uh, publisher of the book was like, can you translate that into an exact time? And I was just like, no, no. There's just, it's almost like a feeling, a vibe that you have. And so uh, my cousin has definitely come around to it uh, specifically because now she lives in America and she's got three sons, who are each of whom is involved in a different sport. And with the Instant Pot, you can at least throw something in there and it'll automatically go to a keep warm setting and you can leave the house and not be kind of uh, clinging to this. So it's something that really has helped me and um, has just been a wonderful way to for me to become more comfortable with Indian food and uh, like just unlocked an opportunity to explore it a lot more. So with the Instant Pot, it's now the only way I will cook rice. I don't actually use the rice function on it, um, but I do what I did for you all today, which is um, Kathy so generously got the rice and soaked it, and you just cook it in four minutes in the Instant Pot and then let it sit and steam for 10 minutes afterwards and then it's done. Um, the lentils, lentils cook very quickly as well. I've used it to make yogurt. Um, 
you do have to make sure you get an instant pot that has the yogurt functionality, but you can make yogurt at home overnight, um, dairy yogurt and non-dairy. Um, one of the other things I love uh, using it for is uh, uh, helping dough rise. And so I'll use it to, um, it's, it's kind of like if you put it on the yogurt setting, it's kind of the perfect warm space for um, a non-dough to rise. Uh, because again, um, you know, just as, just as another function of it. As well, it's really great for making, uh, fermenting the batter to make dosa in Italy. Because in, uh, you know, my grandparents' house in India, they would have the batter sitting out for a couple of days, and it's just because you're in a warm, humid place that it can ferment well. And apartments in Chicago, I don't know about your guys' places right now, but mine's not warm or humid. So, uh, so it's just been a really wonderful way to explore the food that I grew up with and didn't necessarily fully understand or embrace. So... Writing the book was a wonderful way to get back into that. Um, it's got all kinds of uh, paneer, chutneys, pickles, soups, long bra you know, braises, braised vegetables, biryani is something else that we've been able to do in the Instant Pot, other rice dishes, um, the meats, uh, you know, braised chicken, korma, all of that, uh, as well as some breads and desserts. So um, I'm going to demo, I will, I'm going to um, serve you all some samples of one of the dishes from the book. Uh, we've got a raita, we've got dal, we've got rice, and we've got some naan as well. But in the meantime, does anyone have any questions? You know, one thing I've learned with this is that uh, with the Instant Pot is you can kind of fast forward a few pickles that um, otherwise take like a month of, of sitting out. So I pressure cook. Um, I've done this with preserved lemons in the Instant Pot and with the lime pickle. I pressure cook uh, salted lemons and limes with some vinegar in, in the Instant Pot and then um, mix them up with chilies, with uh, you know ginger, garlic, whatever other ingredients are in each one. And then um, they're ready in like a day or two. And they have the flavor as though they've been like hanging out on a ledge in my grandmother's kitchen for a month. Okay, so the question is about like what's a good starter kit for Indian ingredients in that. Um, so, I definitely cook with ghee when I have it, but when I don't have it, I don't worry about it. Um, I have actually a, a friend of mine who's one of the Patel family members said he can't stand ghee um, because he used to smell it all weekend when his mother would make it like the traditional way in their house. So he, ne he never cooked with it. I'll often use a mix of vegetable oil and butter um, so that the butter doesn't burn um, but also just to uh, just to kind of come up with something that's a little bit similar to that in terms of texture. I do really like to buy uh, spices at Patel Brothers because they go through so many. The, you know, the volume is so of sales is so high that you're getting fresh spices. But I also recognize that if you look at some of the packaging, it's a it's a large volume. It's probably more you know, cumin, then you're really thinking that you've got space for, unless you're using it quite a bit. Um, I've also, I really love the Spicewalla brand, um, which you can get via mail order, or you can go to, I definitely recommend buying um, smaller quantities, just so it's not sitting in your spice cabinet forever, because there is a thing, you know, past a year or so, you can open up a jar and sniff it, and it doesn't really smell like anything. So I use a ton of cumin in my cooking, um, infamously. Uh, my, cousin, my cousin was like, your cookbook is like your family's from Kerala, not from Andhra, which I understand was some sort of shade, but... <laughs> Um, I use, so I use a, uh, a lot of cumin. I use a lot of coriander. Um, I think there's absolutely no shame in buying prepared spice mixes of garam masala, uh, things like that. Um, Kashmiri chili powder is an important one. When you buy chili powder in an Indian grocery, 
Um, it might look like cayenne, but it's very mild. Um, if you don't want to buy that or if you just don't have any on hand, you can use a combination of three parts, uh, three parts paprika to one part cayenne. That's how mild uh, uh, red chili powder from India, uh, Indian stores is. So I think to get those, to get some really good um, basmati rice, like I said, get some curry leaves and even just keep them in your freezer. It's not as good as fresh, but that's a, you know, that's a, a wonderful way to start and to you know, kind of get that going. For sure. Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> oh, there have been so many disasters. <laughs> you know, the thing with the Instant Pot is that um, for all the people who have gotten really into it and are like, oh my gosh, like we need to, um, you know, they want to cook everything in it. You know, I see, I see recipes for something like a roast chicken. And yes, you technically can roast a chicken in an Instant Pot, but you're not gonna get all that gorgeous brown crispy skin in there. I mean, this is something that is, um, it will brown um, whatever is, you know, is touching the surface of the bottom of the pot. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's some, some things like that that you really just sort of need an oven for. So the question is, uh, are, are Instant Pots and Ninja, are they the same thing? I know, I know Ninja does a, I'm not familiar with the Ninja doing a, an electric pressure cooker. What you'd look for is kind of a multi-cooker or you'll market them as like a five-in-one or a seven-in-one pressure cooker. Um, I would just caution you that um, the vast majority of recipes were created for the Instant Pot brand. And so I think it's better to buy that one because, uh, first of all, it's, you can kind of regularly catch it on sale. Um, but the other thing is that the recipes were developed with that. So I know that there are some differences if you have, for example, the Cuisinart version or something like that. Uh, that said, every year Instant Pot comes out with new models and they change things on them, which I'm not sure why. We can make a public message to Instant Pot, please stop changing everything. Um, so they, they always have like a different interface. I actually did a dinner um, a few weeks ago in Atlanta, Georgia with um, Marijuana Rani at his Chai Pani restaurant. And we decided to do uh, a chicken biryani for each table. And so he borrowed all these Instant Pots because we had 70 people. And so we had like seven or eight different Instant Pots going. And I had to go up to each one and be like, oh, okay, so that's this model and this is how you do it. Each one has a, has a slightly different way of um, getting to uh, pressure cook, like series of buttons that you press to get to pressure cook or anything like that. It was kind of, it was kind of wild and confusing. Is there an Instant Pot that would have an air fryer? I mean, if it did, it, I believe that there is one coming out if it hasn't not already just come out. I think that would be the sort of holy grail. If you look at an Instant Pot, it seems like the perfect vessel for frying because, um, because it is like tall, there's so much depth to it that it would be so much better than frying and it, you know, on your stove. And it looks like a fryer. So I believe that there is one. I don't know if it's out yet, but um, that would be pretty great. Right, and, and you know, full disclosure, I got rid of the, um, my, I got rid of my husband's slow cooker uh, because we needed to make room for the Instant Pot, and um, I, don't have a, I don't have a rice cooker. I always just cooked rice on the stove, but I would get rid of it and just go. Um, you can do it in the Instant Pot. What I do for basmati rice, I soak it for at least half an hour before I cook it. Um, that means that helps the, each grain of rice just become longer. And then um, rinse it, cook it with equal amounts of, uh, do equal amounts of rice and water, high pressure, three minutes. Yeah, it's a little bit of a different um, timing, but I do find it works well. Yes. Have I cooked anything for my Irish heritage in the Instant Pot? Yes, that was actually sort of not intentionally like, oh, okay, I need to do some Irish things, but um, 
one of the best ways I think to get used to cooking in an instant pot is to take, um, especially this time of year, if you really love stew, take your beef stew, your lamb stew, um, make it in the instant pot. So um, just as you would in a pot, cook, uh, you can brown the meat, take it out, um, put your onions, your carrots, celery, anything else in there, deglaze the bottom, um, which is always very important no matter what you're cooking in an Instant Pot because you don't want to get the burn signal. And that just means that there's food stuck to the uh, bottom of the pot. So you always want to um, add some liquid while it's very hot and scrape that up. Then add the beef, but the great thing is instead of it taking, say, three or four hours for it to cook and get like that, 20 minutes. 20 minutes if you want it like really kind of melting soft. Yeah. But yeah, otherwise, um, I have seen recipes to like make scones and things like that in an Instant Pot, and I'm like, no, oven, oven. Yes. Um, they are, and it's part of how India has undergone quite a bit of cultural change. Quite frankly, you know, my, fam my relatives in India when I was growing up had this very sort of traditional existence and a, and a fairly privileged existence. And so even people who lived in smaller homes had two or three servants working for them. And a lot of the recipes that I encountered were designed for people who had a cook who would come in and soak the lentils, soak the beans, um, you know, make the pickle, all of that. And then the thing is now you don't have, you know, now it isn't sort of verboten for the wife in the family to work as well as take care of the home, for example. Or people have moved. And so, like I said, like my cousin uh, in Dallas grew up in this very traditional household, but, uh, you know, she lives, she lives in Texas. She's got three boys. She's living this very American life. So, uh, so making that adjustment, I think is really important. So, you know, things are, it's hard to say an entire country has changed, especially a country like India, because India, I think, Colleen, I always say India should be five countries. It probably, you could say a dozen countries. I mean, India is this vast, vast landmass that was colonized by the British, by the Portuguese. By, and it's, it's the fact that when India became independent, that it was like, oh, okay, even then it split off into uh, Pakistan and then part of that split off into Bangladesh. So India as a single place is a very, it's a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, my father was 12 when India gained independence. So he was a British subject until then. So it's still, it's still a very new situation. But when everyone says like, oh, Indian food, it's like, oh, Lord, it's like saying, you know, that, yeah, it's like saying American food, but I think it's almost worse than saying American food because there's more commonality to American food than I think that you'll find with Indian food. So many people, when you go to Indian restaurants in America, most of those are based on very, on, most of those are based on the Indian food that was made for the British, but a lot of it is also very Northern based. And so if you go to an Indian restaurant in America, a very classic one, and you sort of, you get all these rich curries that have, um, you know, you get like dal makhni and you get like butter chicken, which I never once had growing up. Um, I, I think I was like 25 when I first had butter chicken because I was like, all right, well, I should see what this thing is. Um, you know, but so many people, like you order like the samosas with all the pastry and everything like that, and then you get butter chicken and you get dal makhni and you get all of these different, you know, rice and that, and then you get this giant pile of naan. And then, you know, have gulab jamun, which is, I like to say in India, we take donuts and we decide that isn't enough and we soak them in like a thick, heavy syrup as well. And people say, oh my gosh, like it's so rich and how do people in India do it? And I'm like, well, good Lord, no one in India eats like this. Like you either have, you have rice or bread. You don't necessarily have both. And my family there, I mean, I, I eat meat. Um, I grew up eating meat and my father started eating meat after he moved to the West, but my family in India doesn't consume any meat. 
And where I, you know, where, where I grew up visiting in India, eating beef is verboten, but friends who live in Kerala, um, which is just straight west of where my father grew up, grew up eating beef because uh, it's, there's a strong Catholic influence there and that's just, it's accepted there. So there's no one hard and fast rule. So it's all, it's a lot. <laughs> yes. It's funny, the whole question of like, of adapting and using different ingredients because I grew up um, in Indian, uh, Indian culture, chats, chat is the name for a lot of the little spices, uh, the snacks and things like that. And you can buy, you know, you can buy this sort of like prepared mixes. But um, when I was growing up, just as my mother had to make yogurt because she couldn't find plain yogurt, if she wanted to do any kind of like little crispy topping um, or do do a mix of um, a chat mix of like, Usually it would have sev, which is a crispy fried uh, chickpea flour noodle. You have, uh, you might have like bundi, which are these kind of like crispy little rice ball, uh, or crispy little flour-based balls and things like that. We would use rice krispies because, and a lot of Indians were like, oh, okay, yeah, like you would go to an Indian's house and see this spice mix, and it was like toasted spices tossed with peanuts and rice krispies. So I had to, I had to actually, as someone who grew up here, I had to learn um, that a lot of Belpuri didn't was not made with Rice Krispies. <laughs> so, any other questions? Yes. This is uh, a Bengali dish, and so um, from southeastern India, it's um, this is a doll that um, my aunties used to make. Um, and I think it's a relatively mild one. I wanted to make something that wasn't um, replete with chilies only because so many people think Indian food is spicy hot and it isn't necessarily. A lot of Indians don't like uh, chilies. That's something actually the Portuguese took to India. So um, so this, is, uh, this, is, this has chana, which is um, split dried chickpeas. Um, it's cooked uh, with some ginger, um, accented with a little bit of lemon juice, a little bit of sugar, and then um, I'm serving it with a little bit of rice. We've got the raita we did, and we've got some naan on the side if you prefer that instead. Uh, there's a lot of similarity to it, to be honest. It's um, ghee, it's, it's kind of a matter of how long you're gonna toast it. Usually ghee, I grew up with ghee that was toasted a little bit more as opposed to just with clarified butter, you kind of want to just melt it enough to, to remove the milk solids. But the difference between ghee and drawn butter and things like that, it's, it's minor, it's, but it's along a spectrum. You absolutely can. You, could, you, you can use ghee as a, as a substitute for clarified butter and vice versa with no problems. <laughs> oh, the question is, can you make burgoo in an Instant Pot? Absolutely you can. You, you can make any kind of stew in the Instant Pot. And it is wonderful because... You can do it quickly, you can do it, you know, if your stove and oven are otherwise occupied. I always think this is such a great thing for tool for people to use when they're cooking a, a holiday dinner and you've already got, say, a turkey in the oven and limited stove space, you can cook with your Instant Pot. But absolutely, you can cook anything stewed, works really well in the Instant Pot. The Instant Pot does have a slow cooker function. I just still cannot get it together to plan for things to go in advance and I would rather just have everything ready and cook it sort of like when I get home after work in 20 minutes as opposed to getting it ready before I go to work and have it ready at the end of the day. Any other questions? Well, thank you all so much for coming out to hear me chatter about my childhood. Um, I have food for you as a reward, so we'll go to them. And I have books, yes. I have copies of the book, so please let me know if you'd like them. Oh, good, good. Yeah, and it's really something of like, that's why I sort of advocate, like as, as, if you're gonna do a lot of cooking, definitely go to the Indian store. If not, I mean, I will send people to the stores where you can just buy like an ounce of it at a time so that you always have fresh spices. The only thing is you have to toast it. You have to toast your spices. If you ever cook, food for an Indian, and she says, oh, 
Spices are a little raw. That's absolute shade. <laughs> Toasting the spices brings out so much flavor. There's, there's different ways of toasting spices. I use, uh, for the sake of, for the sake of uh, convenience of kind of keeping everything going, um, I do what's called banu, which is uh, toasting the spices cooking, um, by cooking them with the ginger, garlic, onions, and other aromatics, just so you're kind of doing it all at once. Oh no, it's like as I'm, um, as I'm, as I'm cooking, so the spices are toasting as they're cooking. So I don't necessarily take untoasted cumin or something and just dump it in, um, but I will, um, I'll add the cumin with, uh, with the onions, say. So as the onions are softening a bit, the cumin's toasting in the oil with them. <laughs>